Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. This is John Powers. First, we've got a phenomenal conversation today with a fellow uh, Iraq veteran, Ryan Popple, who is the CEO of Proterabus. Ryan's had an incredible career uh, going from the, the military to Harvard Business School, working uh, at leading companies like Tesla and at Kleiner Perkins when he sort of lived through the growth of the clean energy space and is the CEO of Proterra. For folks that don't know Proterra Bus, they are a dominant player in the North America mobility space. They are making an electric bus that is uh, really having phenomenal impact on climate change uh, in, in our urban environment. So we're going to talk about the market. We're going to talk about uh, Ryan's experiences in a place like Iraq and how it got him interested in clean energy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. Oh, happy to be here. You've had uh, quite an amazing career before uh, leading Proterra. And I want to sort of step back to when you were at, at William & Mary, uh, you were doing ROTC, you know, I have similar paths there. He led you led you in the army, serving time in Iraq. What? How did you decide to do ROTC? I would say service in some form has always been a big part of my extended family's life. I obviously had a lot of relatives, like like other people who um, or other Americans who had served in the military. So I was very very familiar with that, and a fair number of them had served in the army. I had done the scout program coming up through high school and was an Eagle Scout, and so I maybe I was a little bit more outdoor oriented or a little bit more right. patriotic, you could say, than your, your average kid. I was also, I, I was always into activities, I guess you described as, as kind of high adventure stuff. I like to rock climb. I like to be in the outdoors. So on some level, you know, I was in my late teens and thinking about something like ROTC. And I thought that would be a, that'd be a good way to start my career. I'd spend a lot of time outdoors, get, get tested in a lot of tough situations and, and learn to lead in what's, arguably one of the, the, the most demanding laboratories for producing uh, young leaders. Interesting. And then you, you, you uh, graduated from William & Mary, went into, uh, you went into the Armour, so you were fourth ID, and we were talking a little bit offline, so I'm going to talk a little bit about your, your time in Iraq. You deployed around the same time I did, 2003 and 2004. Talk a little bit about that experience. How, for you personally, did that change the way you sort of view the world coming out of your time over there? Well, yeah, you, uh, you learn a lot really fast when you're, you're deployed into a, um, a real world operation like, like Iraq or Afghanistan or any of the other campaigns. Um, on, on the one hand, um, I, I learned how much focus and attention it requires just to do a good job and take care of your people on a day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis. Right. Um, when, Kind of all all of your basic assumptions around safety and security are gone. I also certainly gives you a front row seat to what conflict actually looks like, and I I think very few people in our society in, in American society have much perspective on um, on what war and conflict really looks like. It, the the percent of people who serve in the military or in any capacity where they they would see that type of operation is very very low. So we we have a very very low level of participation in terms of paying the price for, for things like war and conflict. 
it's also spending time in that part of the Middle East, and especially in in that part of the Middle East during a time of in, intense political turmoil. Um, I, I certainly got the impression that that this this probably was a bad bet in terms of thinking that most of the world's transportation fuel should be dependent upon coming out of that region. And I didn't necessarily put two and two together while I was over there, but if you making the assumption that the, the Middle East is just a place where tens of millions of barrels of oil per day will efficiently flow into the global markets, and if that doesn't happen, basically everything that moves stops. Once you've seen that place and you've seen how, um, how on a razor's edge some of these situations can be and conflicts can be, it definitely got me, it made me much more skeptical about the overall status quo in energy. That's interesting. I feel like there has been a uh, really interesting dynamic right now of veterans who've had that similar experience coming home and getting into uh, getting into solar, getting into energy efficiency, obviously getting into mobility, uh, and really beginning to understand the the national the national security implications of sort of our our energy policy. I mean, uh, you, but you studied business administration at, at William and Mary. And I actually talked about the South Lambos and elementary education major. Uh, energy was not my my thing. Uh, but when I came home, I began to focus on it uh, academically as well as professionally. But you ended up coming home and going to Harvard. How did you decide to sort of follow that path? And, you know, what was it at Harvard that sort of began to uh, pick up your interest into clean energy? Well, I, I knew I wanted to go to business school and sort of dust off a lot of the things I'd learned in undergrad, but hadn't necessarily had the ability to uh, to utilize as a, a tank commander or or cruising around in Humvees in Iraq. Can I ask you a question? Like, how, so did you know, how did you know you wanted to go to business school? Because I feel like there's a lot of folks that are transitioning out of their, you know, first four year stint as officers, and there's a big void on, you know, where where to go and what to do. Right? There's groups that are pulling you into, you know, managing uh, managing uh, uh, logistics chains or whatever. But you know, the, the idea that you wanted to go back to Harvard is a pretty uh, sophisticated decision. Well, the um, the other officers in my unit, I was I was fortunate that it was a, a really talented group of group of individuals. It was um, it was the division cavalry squadron for the fourth ID. So of the armor guys, you had to want to be there. I, I remember right. coming out of training. I, I actually had to write a letter to the S one and the squadron commander. And so we generally um, we we just had a, a a pretty sharp, motivated group of NCOs and officers. And I you know I just got, or I benefited from several mentors that really pushed me. And when I would set my sights on a target that was maybe a little bit um, more reasonable or a little bit less risky, like I'll work for a couple of years or um, I'll give myself more time to study for graduate school exams. There were a couple of people I worked for, like my XO and then a company commander at the time who just said like, Look, if you if if you know you can do it, you don't need the extra time. You you could you could go right. home, out process, take the test, do the essays, and apply to the best schools that you can think of. And 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 don't like don't talk to me about safety schools and don't talk to me about hedging your bets. So I um I applied to Columbia, Northwestern, and Harvard, and that was it. Um, and it was a pretty risky um I would say a pretty risky move, but I didn't have time. I was applying third round. So I didn't have time to crank out 12 applications and I didn't have time to take a sit down study course or whatever, but I had friends and family who, who pushed me to say like, look, I, I think you'll really enjoy that type of environment. I, I had enjoyed what I'd studied in undergrad. And so, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of luck goes a long way, but 
my main motivation is I just wanted to put myself in the most challenging academic environment I could. Um, that it that it tended to work for me in the past. Um, I would get you know be much likely to, much less likely to get bored or um, or lose motivation if there was almost more than I could handle. And that was that worked in the army and that worked in undergrad as well and that worked in business school. So you know I had very little time to apply. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I had to figure out how to show up on campus. Um, in the fall of uh, 2004, um, so not a whole lot of transition time, but um, it ended up working really well. The uh, interesting, and Harvard's got a great reputation for vet- veterans who've gone in under the MBA program. I know a lot of folks in the, both the clean energy industry and others that have gone through that, uh, and they, they really uh, have a great way of uh, integrating folks into the the broader community there. So about Harvard, you know, how did you begin to get interested in, in Silicon Valley and clean energy? Um, you know, because it, it, it sort of led you down a path to, to Tesla and Kleiner Perkins. Yeah. So I, like everyone in, um, in grad school who's using grad school as a, as a career transition point, you try, to, you try to expose yourself to everything that you possibly can in terms of industry and function and location. And, you know, funny enough, I, I actually think it was one book that I read that had more influence on me than, than anything else during that first semester in business school. And it was, um, it was a, it was a study called winning the oil end game. And it was, it was published by the Rocky mountain Institute. So for, for people who, who write and blog and, um, and publish thought leadership about clean energy, it's, it's an example of um, how much unanticipated impact something like that can have. Cause I, I remember I, I flipped open that book and one of the first pages First or second pages of it, there was a photo of a platoon of soldiers in Iraq in 2003 who were doing their best to, you know, secure a checkpoint with a oil well burning it behind them. It, it was a, almost a picture that didn't need a caption. And you know, I, I sort of thought, oh, this is interesting. This is someone who's approaching who's approaching the the security situation over there with an energy and economic paradigm. And and the book kind of described a long term path for how the U.S could become energy independent and not have to make national security decisions right. as, a, as a backstop or an insurance policy for energy supply. And after reading that, I, I just started diving into, um, at the time, what was called alternative energy. Um, and I think those early strategies were things like hydrogen and biofuels and wind and things like that. But that really set me off on knowing that I wanted to work on something that had specific impact in transitioning to a safer form of energy that also led though to learning a lot more about the environmental impact of what we currently do with fossil fuels and it it kind of put me on a path to wanting to seek out roles that were going to be directly involved in um in in that challenge in one way shape or form so it kind of set i'd say wanting wanting my career to be about finding the the next generation of solutions after fossil fuels, that really became kind of the North Star of how I made future career decisions. Amazing. So when you were then went out to the Valley and got engaged at Tesla and, and Kleiner, when you were at Kleiner, I imagine you were probably seeing the the birth of many of the things we're seeing today with, you know, Kleiner was involved in early investments in Tesla and Bloom and uh, obviously Proterra, but in so many uh, clean energy plays that are on the street today, were you just seeing a variety of uh, opportunity and investments sort of come across your desk there? Yeah, working in a place like Kleiner, you're you're probably going to see 
you're probably going to see almost everything and um, the, the, the access to potential deals that they have because of their network within the entrepreneurial community. It's just an incredible platform. On any given day, there might be three to five business plans that are coming into the into the firm in any number of sectors, or or three to five teams of entrepreneurs coming in and talking about their plan to do things in a in a better way. Kleiner had a has a multi pronged approach. So some of our teams worked on things like environmental sustainability. Other teams worked on life sciences, and other teams worked on um, consumer or enterprise uh, digital technology. So you you work with people who covered a, a variety of different sectors, and it was interesting because each of the sectors went up and down over time. Um, sometimes the life sciences group um, was having the most success in helping to commercialize uh, entrepreneurs, and other times you'd have a situation like Nest, where Tony Fidel had decided that after Apple, he, his, uh, his life's work was going to be energy efficiency. Um, right. So you, you got to see um, I mean, some of the most or, or the most talented entrepreneurs in the world across a number of sectors. And I also got to see a lot of the evolution of investing in, um, in environmental sustainability or environmental impact. And I, I probably arrived at Kleiner at the end of the beginning in that when environmental investing first started at venture capital firms, you had people who had no subject matter or industry expertise transitioning out of their former sectors. Like you had biotech investors becoming biofuel investors. You had semiconductor investors becoming solar investors. And that model, for the most part, was unsuccessful. And it wasn't until kind of the next generation of impact investing where there was actually a, a group of investment professionals that knew their sectors like solar or LED or battery or water or food, as well as previous generations of investors knew semis and um, uh, pharmaceutical or, or life sciences businesses or software businesses. Interesting. So how did you decide? I'm going to get to Proterra here in a second and talk about the the incredible mission you guys are on, but how did you then decide that you were interested in moving from that side of the, the ball where many people will build a career and stay at a firm like that uh, and continue to look at, invest in, and then advise firms, but jumping from that into sort of an executive role into one of the companies in the, in, in the overall uh, investment, how did you decide to make that leap? You know, for me, it's, it's generally about impact in terms of what, what am I going to do or, or what will be the result of the decision I make? So when I, when I joined Tesla, I felt like that was a very high impact time to join that company. The, the three years that I was there, you, everything you worked at on felt absolutely mission critical. And I, I'm still proud to this day to see cars like the Model S on the road and even the original Roadsters. Um, given that when I first joined Tesla, Tesla didn't have any revenue. We, we literally had to figure out the very first production system for the Roadster and, um, and then figure out the, um, the capital strategy for the Model S. So, um, you know, to, the, the Model S is probably the last of the Tesla cars that I feel like I know really well. The Model 3 was completely after my time. But I, you know, for the rest of my life, I'll be, I'll be proud to have played a part in that initial team, given that Tesla seemed to almost die every six months during the time I was there, which coincided with the Great Recession. And I think the right. fact that 
there's a relatively small crew of us that kept the faith and got and and just worked our tails off and helped Tesla make it to what it is today. You know, that's life's work that, that we can be really proud of. When I went over to Kleiner, it really was, again, a decision on impact. I thought, well, I can continue to do what I'm doing at Tesla, or I could help the entire clean energy sector and help get some of the next generation Tesla-like companies off the ground and financed. And then likewise for Proterra, Proterra was a Kleiner company, still is a Kleiner company. And when they were searching for a CEO to basically take it from the very beginnings of revenue to the first hundred million or more of revenue, it felt very similar to what I had lived through at Tesla. And it also felt very important. I, these types of companies, the, the team that you put in place is, it's just absolutely essential that you get that right. Larger companies have a lot of process. They have training wheels. There, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of safety nets. And so companies will go through good teams and bad teams and that, you know, might shave their growth by a few percentage points. But when you're launching a new technology into the market, if you have anything other than a completely committed, focused and experienced team, it's likely not going to work. And so just from an impact perspective, I, the question I asked myself, where, where would my career have more impact? I could work on the next Kleiner um, Green Fund and help get that fund raised along with a team of people that I knew and loved. Or I could move into Proterra and help grow a company through what is typically the most challenging part of a company's life cycle. And so, you know, I, I tend to measure um, the, the, the decisions I make, I tend to measure them on kind of leverage and impact. And I also like to find things that are just a few millimeters beyond my comfort zone when I first go into them. And, and that is um, that it tend to, to be a model that's worked well for me. I haven't really right. stood still for that long anywhere. So, so let's talk about Proterra. So when most people think about electric vehicles, they do, they think about Tesla, they think about uh, the Leaf and, and, and other sort of uh, moving individual customers around. Most people don't think about buses, but the impact you guys are having at Proterra is, is, is incredible. Talk a little bit about the history of Proterra and sort of where, you know, where, what you guys are doing today. Well, Proterra was, was founded by a, a real visionary in the mass transit vehicle industry, Dale Hill. Dale Hill. And uh, Dale is still with our company today, so it's very much a partnership between me and Dale. Dale still plays the role as founder, and I'm the day-to-day -day chief executive officer. Um, so the original vision, though, from Dale, he had worked on hybrid bus technology. And before anyone else in this sector saw it, he, he saw the potential for building essentially a hybrid that didn't have to lean on an internal combustion engine. And I think it's remarkable how prescient he was, given that at the time, batteries were very heavy and they were very expensive. But his view of how this would work is very similar to how we have, we have commercialized it today. It's purpose-built commercial vehicles where the vehicles are, are lightweight and capable of carrying the appropriate amount of energy storage highly efficient drivetrain, again, that's, that's purpose-built for heavy-duty vehicle, and then charging systems that are appropriate for fleet vehicles that ha have high utilization. And so the, the, the vision started out with just a few deployments. I, I think when I started, Proterra maybe had a half dozen customers and vehicles on the road in two or three fleets and only a handful of them. And where we went from there, we, we were able to determine that the customers really did prefer to move into an environment where 
the vehicles were zero emission. The vehicles ran on low cost, predictable electricity. Right. And they, they were able to get away of get away from not just the economic insecurity of fossil fuel, but just the hassle of a fossil fuel internal combustion engine vehicle. So the, the, the vision was there, the, the, the pent up demand was there, but the product was not. The early generations of electric buses, um, they did not have the capability to do the majority of routes um, and they didn't have a lot of the, the the power needed to climb hills, et cetera. So that kind of started a journey that we've been on for the last couple of years to ensure that the battery electric bus in North America is a completely disruptive product to the the internal combustion engine city bus. So what makes, for folks that aren't as familiar with uh, sort of the mass transit setup, why is sort of a bus fleet so attractive for introducing electric vehicles into well, on the one hand, if you look at it just from a from an impact perspective, if you can replace a diesel bus with a electric bus, you look at the number of seats or the passenger capacity in a single diesel bus. And in some of these buses, they're configured to carry 50, 60, 70 people. And you're, you're only using about four times the equivalent of a Tesla Model S in terms of, terms of energy storage. And that was really that was really a light bulb moment for me because at the end of the day, what really matters in terms of environmental sustainability is how much energy are you using per person per mile. Right. So I think electric cars are incredibly important. Um, electric cars, though, are only going to solve one of the many problems we have in transportation. Electric cars are a good idea or are a good replacement for. Uh, internal combustion engine automobile. But you still have the problem that you've got a four or 5,000 pound set of material. You have 30 to $75,000 of cost and you're moving one human, human being on one or two trips per day. So cars only go 10 to 12,000 miles a year and they only carry one or two people. Buses, on the other hand, go 40 to 80,000 miles a year and they're carrying dozens of people and hundreds of different trips per day. So if, if, we're, if we're trying to be very pragmatic about how do we get the most people to the most places with the least amount of petroleum, we want to start with the vehicles that are doing the most trips and, and burning the most fuel right now. Right. Um, the same way if you invented a, an LED technology and you went to market you would want to you'd want to target markets where the lights are big and the lights are always on. And the transit system, the the systems are always running and they're big vehicles using a lot of fuel. When you when you drill into the numbers, it, I mean it's quite remarkable how much fuel these vehicles use. A, a diesel bus is often getting less than four miles per gallon energy efficiency. Wow. And when we transition them to electric buses, they're getting 16 to sometimes 26 miles per gallon energy equivalent. Um, you take that four mile per gallon driving 40,000 miles a year, you're, you're burning 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel per year. Then the other aspect of it is these are urban vehicles. So if you're looking for vehicles that have both a, a climate sustainability advantage and a local air quality sustainability advantage, we should really be focusing on urban vehicles. If, if we're looking for maximum return on investment and you want to 
not just reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but also reduce healthcare costs due to asthma and heart disease. You want to go after your most dangerous pollutants in your most urbanized areas. And unfortunately, routes for city buses and school buses are designed to be people-centric. Right. So those are the vehicles where you are going to see human beings and diesel interacting most directly. So for, to give a sense of scale for folks, recently the BNES got their 2019 electric vehicle outlook that says that the global bus fleet's already underway to over 400,000 electric buses on the road with the idea that there'll be adoption of over 70% of the global bus fleet by 2040. So, so significant scale. Where, where do you see the opportunity most for Patera here domestically in the U.S. as you're putting in a footprint or sort of growing internationally or both? Well, I think our, our domestic strategy or, or I'd say North American strategy is our most direct path for growth. And that's, that's what we've been focused on. Each of these global vehicle markets tend to have very much local content requirements and uh, local vehicle configurations. So while a 40-meter or a 40-foot bus seems a lot like a European 12-meter bus, we have different DMVs, different DOTs, and these are big products. And so a big product and one that can be damaged in an accident, it tends to require domestic or in-country manufacturing. Right. So what you tend to see is your big country markets, your big continental markets are dominated by three to five players. And we are dominating the North American electric bus market. And the focus of our company is to continue to do so. In a lot of ways, we, we think we are the most important variable in determining the pacing of the transition from fossil fuel to electric, i.e. the quality of the Proterra electric bus, the performance of the Proterra electric bus is going to be the pacing item in the North American market being able to let go of fossil fuels. We do see a lot of opportunities That's quite internationally. A I love it. Yeah, it's, it's well, we make the best electric bus. And so yeah. therefore, if there's a city that's not buying electric buses, it's our fault. It means right. we haven't built an electric bus that has their confidence yet. Well, if, um, I'm, if I'm in that city manager's position or the, or the fleet manager's role, you know, I don't have the capital to go buy a whole new bus fleet, right? So how, how do you propose and structure opportunities for them uh, some might have that opportunity, right? If you look at Colorado, where they're getting some really interesting uptakes from, uh, you know, cannabis money, for instance, but the majority of them don't have that, that type of capital outlay. So how does Proterra approach that fleet manager with the solution that works for them? Well, we spend a lot of time on education. And one of the things we, we help them understand is how much money they're currently spending on their incumbent technology. So even a vehicle that they think or they feel is fully depreciated when we walk through the maintenance depot with a customer and we just look around at the number of mechanics, the boxes of engines that are waiting to go into vehicles that have blown engines and transmissions, the, the cost of having deadlined vehicles that, that aren't doing any revenue service, we, we help them identify the O&M waste in the system right. and start thinking about how O&M savings could help them with new capital assets. It's a little bit like going into an apartment building or a home. And before you start thinking about a solar system for a customer, you help them see how much energy is being wasted or how much money they're losing right now today 
just through things like inefficiency or legacy technology. If we find that this technology is a good fit and has a good business case for them, what we also find is it's a bankable transaction. It's a financeable project in that we can take a situation where a customer is spending tens of thousands of dollars per month on labor and O&M and spare parts on diesel buses, and that that is um, evidence that they have the cash flows right. to be able to finance something like a battery electric system. And then we try to do a good job of helping them form partnerships. There are partnerships that they can form with the USFTA at the federal level. There are partnerships at the state level, sometimes at the city level, and sometimes even with local businesses that want more transit service but want it to be clean. And at the end of the day, these projects all end up being quite large. Even a small electric bus project is a couple million dollars in terms of buses and chargers. So it's um, it's a, a longer sales cycle than obviously doing consumer products, but there's enough meat on the bone in terms of project size that we can get capital providers like Mitsui, for example, to come to the table and want to finance charging stations or finance battery packs. Interesting. Well, we'll have a follow-up conversation about clean capital's role too, because we're, we're, we're very interested in those type of, of financings and thinks it's the, the future of... Uh, the way, the, the way these type of services are provided. So I'm going to um, sort of, since we're running out of time, sort of lead to the, the, the last and final question we've asked most of our folks. Um, the incredible growth of Proterra has been phenomenal. You guys are really hitting a sweet spot and it's, it's uh, great to hear about your dominance in North American market. And, and you know, personally, someone who's gone from, uh, you know, college of William & Mary to deployed to Iraq and to business school in the Silicon Valley, you know, you've sort of seen... Uh, the policy implications of clean energy. You've seen uh, the way that you know the the market is, is is maturing and growing, and the opportunity for I think we as a whole to transition to a, a clean energy future. But if you could go back to visit yourself at William and Mary before you uh, had your uh, lieutenant pars pinned on and and leave for the army, you could sit down and have a beer. What what advice would you give yourself? Oh gosh. Um... I give myself several pieces of advice that, that, that I would not share on this show. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but uh, actually, I think that the biggest piece of advice I'd, I'd give myself is surround yourself with the most talented and um, inspiring people you can find, um, but also make sure those people are, are fundamentally glass half full people. You will get so much more done in your career, in your personal life, if you build and you maintain a positive outlook. You know, there's this great quote, oh gosh, it's, I think it's Dickens, it might be Twain, but it's about, um, you know, my life's been full of tragedies, most of which have never happened. Um, A lot (laughs) of us have been through some, you know, pretty dicey situations. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, getting your startup through the Great Recession or something like that, or a deployment. And when you think back on how you did it, you know, you just, you, you have to keep a positive outlook. You have to have kind of a, something that the compass is pointed at, stay focused on it. But it's also critical that your network, your friends and family, the people you give your time to and the people you help are, are fundamentally uh, people who are positive by nature. And I, I think for the clean energy community, you know, we've been told over and over and over that you know, there is no future beyond fossil fuels and there's nothing we can do about climate change. So why even get started on it? And, um, 
you know, and, and there have been successes and failures in, um, in clean energy companies. But, you know, fundamentally, I, I, I guess the advice I'd give myself is, you know, you, you do have to be good at anticipating outcomes and challenges, but you, you've, you've got to fundamentally stay in a positive mindset. Otherwise, like if you actually stack up all the challenges you're going to have to knock down, if you really want to have a career that, that has a big impact on the world, you'll give up before you even start. You'll pick the safe route. So, um, I yeah, it. I... I would uh, I would focus on that. It took me a little while in my career to learn that the best thing I could do was the crew of people that I went out for beers with, uh, hang out with the people who know that you're all going to figure it out. I love it. Well, Ryan, thank you for for what you're doing at Proterra, and thanks to your team for helping to to coordinate this. Uh, we're really excited to have you on, on the podcast. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with you, and uh, look forward to catching up soon. You can find more. Uh, episodes at cleancapital.com. Uh, please share your thoughts. And uh, if you've got other folks you'd like, like to hear on the, the show. And as always, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.